Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. Hello and welcome to another episode of Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. I'm delighted you decided to join us today because we've got a heck of a show on the way. Later on, I'll be joined by TheWindyCity.com's Ryan Heckman. Ryan's a major Chicago sports fan, so we'll be talking about the Chicago Bears. We'll also discuss the recent documentary that was done, The Last Dance, which focused on the 1990 Chicago Bulls, specifically Michael Jordan, and their run of six championships in eight years momentarily here i've got a podcast shout out which is a new segment i want to shout out and give a little shine to another podcast and after that we'll have the return of this day in sports history followed by my conversation with ryan and then we'll end the day with a ranky panky as we rank our top five non-title winning nba team great show coming up let's get to the podcast shout out right now so for this debut installment of Podcast Shoutout, I'd like to give a little love to the Three Facts Podcast. Matt Castle is the host of this podcast, and it's unlike any podcast I personally have listened to. Now, I will say these are very short podcasts. They're about four, five, six minutes long. And basically what happens, these podcasts are released each Sunday, and Matt comes out, he digs up three interesting facts some of the things are kind of off the wall but they're very interesting facts they're very informative they're entertaining and most of all they're short you know we as people we're busy we sometimes don't have a whole lot of time to spend listening to a podcast but matt does a great job with three facts podcast like i said i've listened to a few of his shows and have really enjoyed them and also matt's just been great to tweet the links to my shows to try to get some more ears listening to the podcast he's uh he's been great at retweeting me and liking tweets and so i really appreciate that so i just wanted to give matt a shout out today that's three facts podcast you can follow him on twitter at three facts pod and three is spelled out t-h-r-e-e can listen to Three Facts Podcast on a number of platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and several others. So just check out Matt's podcast. Again, that's Three Facts with Matt Cassum. Great podcast. And like I said, short, informative, entertaining. What more can you want from a podcast? With that said, let's head into this day in sports history. After a one-week absence, we return with a brand new edition of This Day in Sports History. We start on May 27, 1912. Sam Snead was born, a man who would one day become known as one of the greatest golfers of all time. Snead passed away in 2002 at the age of 89. Snead is currently tied with Tiger Woods for the most career victories on the PGA Tour with 82. He also won seven major championships, matching such players as Bobby Jones and Arnold Palmer and ranking behind only Jack Nicklaus's 18 major championships, Tiger Woods' 15, Walter Hagen's 11, Ben Hogan and Gary Player's 9 apiece, and Tom Watson's 8 major titles. Snead was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 1974. On May 27, 1968, George Hallis retired from coaching in the National Football League with 318 career regular season wins and eight NFL titles as a coach or owner. Hallis was a co-founder of the National Football League in 1920 and he also founded one of the most historic franchises in NFL history, the Chicago Bears. Hallis was first a player coach before retiring from playing in 1929. He had several stints as the Bears head coach after finishing his career as a tight end. And in 1963, Hallis became one of the first 17 inductees in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Other notable members of that inaugural class were Jim Thorpe, Sammy Baugh, Earl Curley Lambeau, Bronco Nagurski, and Ernie Nevers. 
Seven years later, May 27, 1975, the Philadelphia Flyers won their second consecutive Stanley Cup title with a 2-0 win over the Buffalo Sabres in Game 6 of that year's Stanley Cup Finals. In doing so, the Flyers became the ninth NHL team in history to win back-to-back Stanley Cups. 16 teams in total have won at least two championships in a row since the league's first season in 1918, including the Montreal Canadiens, who won back-to-back titles three times, five straight from 1956 to 60, and four consecutive from 1976 to 79. The Flyers were founded in 1967 and won those back-to-back titles in 1974-75, but have not won a Stanley Cup since. We finish on May 27, 1987. Then a member of the New York Yankees, Phil Necro became the third pitcher in Major League Baseball history to make 700 career starts, joining Cy Young and Don Sutton in that club. Cy Young's 815 starts is the most ever, while Nico is fifth all-time with 716 career starts, also behind Nolan Ryan, Sutton, and Greg Maddox. Considered the greatest knuckleball pitcher of all time, Nico finished with 318 career wins, a 335 ERA, and 3,342 strikeouts to go with 29 saves as a relief pitcher. Most of Necro's career was spent with the Atlanta Braves, and he played until the age of 48. That's it for this week's This Day in Sports History. Now on to the next part of the show. Ryan, first of all, I just want to welcome you and thank you for uh, joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate you doing this. Absolutely. Glad to be, uh, glad to be here, man. We all need a little extra sports talk in our lives right now. Yeah, we definitely do. The first thing I want to talk about, obviously, I know you work with the WindyCity.com, which is part of uh, Fansided. Uh, talk a little bit about what you do there. Yeah, well, we uh, we are part of Fansided's network. We're kind of a uh, one-stop shop in terms of Chicago sports. So uh, myself and Patrick Sheldon are the uh, site experts uh, or editors, if you will. And we've got a team of right now, probably about 15 writers. A lot of them specialize in different teams, but uh, a lot of them also write on multiple teams. But we uh, we consistently try to push out unique content on the Bears, the Bulls, Cubs, White Sox, Blackhawks, occasionally some uh, collegiate stuff as well. We primarily focus on professional sports in Chicago, but uh, yeah, it's a blast, man. I've been doing this a couple of years now for this team, and it's a great, great gig. We've got an amazing team, uh, amazing family of writers, so it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I read some of your content from time to time. One that I uh, I really liked, I think you did last month, you actually did the story with your father. Maybe provide the listeners a little bit, just a, a quick synopsis of that story. Oh, man, yeah. Um, well. About 11 years ago now, my father uh, got cancer for the first time. So he ended up battling cancer twice. Both times were uh, very serious. And um, I was raised in a Chicago sports home. My father and my mom uh, both lived uh, a couple of blocks from Wrigley right before I was born. So my dad fell in love with Chicago sports. That's how I was raised. If anybody here asks, you know, why are you a Bears fan living in Vikings country or living close to Packers country? Uh, you know, I was raised to say, well, your dad raised you right. So uh, that's my answer and I'm sticking to it. But uh, my dad's a diehard Chicago sports fan. So I'm a diehard Chicago sports fan. And so about 10 years ago or so when he got uh, sick the first time, you know, it, it hit hard. And uh, it, it's kind of funny because in, in tough times like we're at right now, you look for that escape and you look for that out. And right now, without sports, all of us are, you know, without that getaway, you know, we're without that thing that uh, we can run to, you know, in tough times and just get our escape. And uh, for my dad, that was, you know, a couple of things, family, church, he's a pastor, uh, but one of them was the Bears. So this piece was just kind of about how the Bears got him through cancer, amongst other things. But uh, he, he fought twice. The big story, uh, the, the one thing, the, the one reason why I always love Jay Cutler, no matter what anybody says about him, kind of the, the famous story that he'll tell is the day that the Bears traded for Cutler, 
my dad was just out of a round of chemo. And so I was upstairs. My dad was downstairs. I was living at home, commuting to, to college at the time. And he, in, in my mind, he was napping. You know, there was nothing going on in the house. He was napping. And so I was upstairs doing something. And all of a sudden I heard uh, a loud noise and my dad screamed and I had no idea what went on. So I am like, basically somersaulting down the stairs, like what happened? Dad's hurt. You know, he's very weak, frail at the time. And my dad meets me around the corner and goes, the Bears traded for Jay Cutler. The Bears traded for Jay Cutler. We're going to the Super Bowl. And as he tells the story, obviously that didn't happen. But that one moment, he felt the most excitement and hope that he had felt in so long and was able to totally forget that he had cancer for that moment. And from then on out, any Bears game that was on TV uh, was was just his escape. It was three hours where he was able to completely forget about what was going on. And yeah, that's sorry. And I know uh, it, that that's a tough thing to put into a nutshell, but right. that's that's basically that's basically the, the gist of the story. Yeah, I definitely encourage anybody who may be listening to this to uh, to read that story. It was very inspirational uh, in a lot of ways. I'm uh, actually currently reading unscripted uh which is about ernie johnson jr and his story and uh, his battle with cancer and that's been a really encouraging book for me so stuff like that is it's just great to read people who have, have battled and beat cancer i want to get into talking about uh the chicago bears i know that's your your team and that's the team you, you write a lot about for the site talk about their my uh, first love yeah uh, talk about their off season. I know uh, quarterback position specifically signed Nick Foles. Uh, they declined Trubisky's option for 2021. So just talk about the quarterback situation there in Chicago. Well, the quarterback position specifically right now, I think is uh, in short, it's better than it was a year ago. Uh, if you want to look specifically at Chase Daniel versus Nick Foles, Nick Foles is a better quarterback. And the way I see it, Nick Foles is a better quarter that, quarterback than Mitchell Trubisky, mm-hmm. but not by a ton. I mean, it, you know, Foles is an upgrade. Yes, uh, he's not an all-pro upgrade. However, I think when he went to Jacksonville, the scheme that they ran wasn't necessarily fit for Foles. It wasn't as intelligent and as gadgety, so to speak, uh, like the one they ran in Philly. And I think that's the scheme that Matt Nagy tried to bring to the Bears back in 2018 and kind of got away from last year. So bringing Foles in, who knows Matt Nagy, he knows uh, offensive coordinator Bill Lazor, who was just hired. He knows John DeFilippo, who was just hired, new quarterbacks coach. He's got a lot of familiarity with that type of scheme and that type of offense. And so I think, first of all, the offense fits him better. And when the when the competition gets started, in my mind, it's not going to be much of a competition. Foles is far ahead of Trubisky in, in a lot of things. And I think mentally it'll, it'll come to show where he's just a lot further along in terms of going through his progressions, making making the correct reads. And for all of those Twitter folks and all the social media guys out there who love to, you know, talk about this, this debate and um, they'll post videos of Foles' bad decisions and Trubisky's bad decisions and say, all these guys are the same. Every quarterback makes a bad decision here and there. So it's easy to throw those tapes together. But in the grand scheme of things, I think the Bears quarterback room is better this year. I think Foles wins the job. I don't think it's going to be difficult as much as there are people out there thinking that Trubisky could improve and still has a chance. I personally don't think so. And um, you talk about the option. Yeah, there's no way they're going to pay Trubisky $24 million next year. Not a chance. So uh, I think it was the right call. It was, it was the only call. There was really no other option there. Yeah. Talk about the weapons uh, that they have around, you know, whoever ends up winning that quarterback job. Uh, how do you feel about the offensive <laughs> weapons? You know, I, I feel good. Uh, I feel good enough about the receiving core. I think it's a very underrated receiving core. I think Allen Robinson is an elite wide receiver. My hot take of the last few days was uh, saying that I'd rather have Allen Robinson than Odell Beckham uh, for multiple reasons. But uh, I think Allen Robinson is elite. He's never seen a good quarterback in his life on, on his own offense. You know, he goes from Christian Hackenberg to Blake Bortles now to Mitch Trubisky, even still putting up elite numbers and uh, just watching him on on film. The catches that he makes, the the radius he has, and the route running, you you probably saw the highlight video put out there on Twitter a few days ago. 
that kind of blew up about his route running. Everything about him is elite. So I love Robinson as the one. I think Anthony Miller as the two. He really showed strides last year. He kind of came together and, and figured things out. My biggest complaint with him uh, was his attitude for a little while. He seemed to care more about his image on social media and was, you know, John out there on the field after plays and, and not really doing much to back up his talk. Uh, he just kind of seemed to have a sour attitude, but he, he seemed to put that past him and really evolved as a player and, and a person from all accounts last year. The rest of the receiving core, uh, we'll see. You know, I like the Ted Ginn signing. I think that was a perfect signing. We needed speed. And um, he might be a one-trick pony, but that's the trick that we needed. So I think that was a great one-year signing. You look at all the signings Pace is making, by the way, and there are a lot of veterans. You know, he's gearing up for uh, a run. And, um, you know, we can talk about that. that That's a different tangent, why why people hate on their offseason so much. But I'll, I'll save that and steer back to the offense. You know, tight end was a big problem. Uh, the Jimmy Graham signing, I didn't understand. I would understand it if it was for less money. But uh, we'll see. Jimmy, he'll, he'll have to prove a lot of uh, Bears fans wrong. But uh, he'll, he'll be there to, to mentor Cole Komet, who was the clear-cut number one tight end. I also didn't like them drafting him at number 43. I think they could have gotten him a little bit later, but Pace has it in his head that he's going to try to fix the tight end as bad as it might hurt to do so. And so reaching that high for the number one tight end in the draft, which let's not, <laughs> let's not overlook the fact that last year we had TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fan both go in the first round. Komet wasn't quite that type of talent, but he was still the best. And an argument could be made that, hey, maybe getting him at 43 was a good value. And I could understand that. I'm just a little indifferent. He and Graham, and I think that uh, only time will tell. And then as for the running backs, honestly, I like David Montgomery uh, a lot. I think he's a complete back. I like Tariq Cohen and what he can do if he commits to his decisions that he makes. Last year, he kind of regressed a little bit. He looked a little shaky, didn't know what he was doing at times. Uh, but it all comes down to the offensive line. If the line is even just a little bit better than last year, I'll be happy because last year it was not great. But as a whole, I think the offense can be good enough under Foles because that defense got even better. So uh, that's going to be scary for other offenses. Yeah, and, and that's what I think about when I think of the Bears is is their defense, uh, Khalil Mack specifically, obviously. But talk about the Bears' defense and, and how strong it is. Well, you know, they don't really have a lot of weaknesses. Um, last year, you could argue that Khalil Mack wasn't his best, and I would have a hard time disagreeing. You know, eight and a half sacks was pedestrian, um, not even close to what you would expect out of him. But I really think in watching him over and over and over again last year that it would be tough for anybody in his position to go out there and continue to produce at a high level with all the expectations when you're getting four plays of rest. Uh, the offense couldn't contain drives. They, they couldn't sustain drives, excuse me. Um, so for a guy like Khalil Mack and really a lot of guys on that defense, it's going to be tough going into the late third quarter and entire fourth quarter if you are getting zero rest. It's tough for any defense. So going into this year, as long as, like I said, as long as the offense can be good enough, I think they'll be even better. You basically traded Leonard Floyd for Robert Quinn, who is such an underrated pass rusher, and he's never had a teammate like Khalil Mack. So the fact that you're getting two elite pass rushers on, on both sides is, quite frankly, scary. And then you have Akeem Hicks, who's always been criminally underrated. He just destroys uh, your run game along with Eddie Goldman. But Akeem Hicks is just a problem. He's just so relentless off the end position. And, you know, I'm not even talking about their secondary. I'm not talking about... Danny Trevathan, Roquan Smith, you know, you got Eddie Jackson, the top five safety in the league, Kyle Fuller, who's, you know, been an all pro, pro bowl cornerback. I just think that defense got better. Um, they signed to Sean Gibson, which was such a great, you know, lower kind of under the radar type signing when he was released from Houston, because man, he's, he's a lot better than, than some might think, you know, it was a late signing after Houston released him. So a lot of people were out there going, wait, who, who is this guy again? But you might remember him with the AFC Championship Jacksonville Jaguars defense. He was a safety starting uh, in that secondary. So really, they just added they added talent. Uh, they got better. You have two premier pass rushers in a loaded front seven, and I'm excited to see them go against Aaron Rodgers twice this year. So, <laughs> Yeah. What are your thoughts on your head coach there in Chicago? You know, I like him. I like him a lot. 
I, I really like him. I still believe in him. You know, when the Bears first brought on Matt Nagy, he impressed the heck out of me in his first press conference. And um, I think he's been nothing but outgoing, nothing but positive. And he's a lot different. I'm trying to find the, the right word. He's a lot different than what Bears fans have been used to. You know, you go from John Fox or Mark Tressman or even back to Lovey Smith. They're not the most outgoing. They're not the most positive. They didn't smile a lot. And, and that might sound weird, but with Matt Nagy from the get-go, you found that he had this genuine, positive, caring attitude that he brought to the table and you felt it right away. And so I really like him as a leader. I like him as a coach. I do think he's incredibly smart, but I think he tries to be too smart at times. And so when he talked about getting back and really committing to the run game in this coming season, I think he, he means it because, you know, even the fans, you know, we can see it. And we're not paid to coach. We're not paid to, to grade film. We're not paid to do any of that stuff. We're fans. And as a fan, you could even see that he tried to outsmart himself and he abandoned the run too often or didn't even commit in the first place. And so I think he's smart enough where he's going to try to correct that. Now, did Ryan Pace give him the best upgrade on the offensive line this offseason? Not necessarily, so we'll have to see. But I really like Matt Nagy. I think he's a great leader. Uh, I do believe in him and his ability to correct mistakes. So going forward, I I'm in on him, even though he has made some errors. And uh, I do think he's going to correct them. It'll be interesting to see what awaits the Bears next season. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to start the season on time or it won't be too much of a delay. But um, I know right. uh, the big story in the NFL, obviously this offseason, is uh, Tom Brady going to Tampa Bay. Gronk come out of retirement to join him. How do you see Tampa Bay? You see them as legit Super Bowl contenders, or is it kind of a wait and see what they look like? Well, yeah, I mean, how could you not with Tom Brady? Um, last year, New England's offense sputtered at times, but you could also argue that the Patriots didn't have hardly anybody to throw the ball to. So going into Tampa now, he's got 2,000-yard receivers and Chris Godwin and Mike Evans – you bring Gronk out of retirement, which, sure, that's great. It's a fun story. Is he in football shape, or will he get there? Will he get back to the guy he once was? We don't know. If he's remotely close, that's a good thing. But they still have two very talented tight ends in O.J. Howard and Cameron Bright. And Howard, I think Howard might end up having the best season out of them all if they choose to use him right. He's a physical specimen. He's a mismatch on just about any linebacker, safety, corner. He's just – he's a freak athlete. And I think Brady is probably chomping at the bit to get to work with him. And Gronk is just kind of an added bonus. So I wonder what Howard's production is going to be like compared to Gronk. But I think that offense is going to be special. Now, defensively, it's, it's interesting because they weren't good last year. <laughs> we'll just say that. Yeah. They weren't they, – well, I, you know, so I'll say this. They were very good against the run. I'll take that back. They were very good against the run. Against the pass, it was a different story. So if, if Todd Bowles can get it going uh, in the right direction and continue, you know, in terms of the secondary, if they can catch up to the front seven, then it could get interesting. They'll be able to score points, but the question for me is all on their secondary and just their defense as a whole, if they can step up to the plate. But, yeah, I, I do believe they're a Super Bowl contender. It's tough not to when you have that much talent on offense. Yeah, I think uh, when you look at that division, it's going to be a really tough one, obviously, with the quarterbacks you've got there. I think more than anything, looking forward to the Drew Brees versus Tom Brady matchup. And, uh, oh, absolutely. Those are going to be some, some really fun games to watch. Yeah, those are going to be a blast. Yeah. I did want to get into – I know you, you mentioned earlier we haven't really had – as much of an escape with no live sports going on. Uh, we have had an escape on Sunday nights here for the last five weeks with the, the last Thank you, dance, Jesus. <laughs> the last dance documentary on the bulls. And uh, I want to start just talking a little bit about the last two episodes we just had within, I think the last five or 10 minutes of episode 10, we had the revelation, Jordan saying he would have accepted a one-year contract <laughs> to come back and some of the other guys he thinks would have as well. What were your thoughts on that? <laughs> I knew you were going there first. <laughs> uh, man, that's tough to answer in short, but I'll say this. So I started out, I'll, you know, going back to the very beginning of the documentary where it was revealed, you know, the entire conversation about, Jerry Krause saying this is going to be Phil's last season, no matter what, he can go 82-0, but he's, he's not coming back. 
<clears throat> and that's really initially what started the the rebuild. You know, of course, where Mike said, I'm not playing for another coach. So you have that in episode one. Now to come back to it in episode 10, within the last five minutes or so, and kind of bring it full circle, and for Michael to say that, it just only reignites the anger that I started to have when I started this documentary in the first place. You know, you're watching, you're watching, if any Bulls fan out there is watching episode one, you hear all that and you get angry right away. You're like, this is unacceptable. How in the world could Jerry Krause decide, yeah, we're done. We're just going to call it. When you have the greatest player to ever play the game, who very well could carry a team if he had to in 99. And then you come back and end episode 10 with that thought, just really frustration and anger at, uh, at Krause. That's, that kind of sums it up, really. I was sitting there smiling as Michael was, was saying that and just nodding my head going, yep, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. He's hitting every single point on the head. Who was to think that those guys wouldn't come back on a one-year deal for a little less money if they could, if they could go after number seven? Why wouldn't they? And, and Michael said it, and everybody was thinking it, and he said it, and every Bulls fan out there is just as angry as they were, if not more, than they were watching all of that in the beginning of the, uh, the documentary. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we talk about the Bulls, and you can't talk about Michael Jordan, I don't think, without talking about Scottie Pippen. I think the best one-two punch that's ever been in the NBA. I gained a lot more even respect for Scottie seeing the game six, 98, him toughing it out and just being out there just even as a decoy at times. And, right. And just talk about him being able to tough that out and, and, and your thoughts on Scotty. That was really cool. I really liked that segment. It did kind of restore a lot more faith in Scotty Pippen, the player and the person. Obviously, there were some tough times to watch for Scotty throughout that documentary where he refused to go back in the game when he ended up you know, not being chosen for that final shot. Obviously, the, that final season – he decided to have fun that summer and put off his surgery and then sat out for a while, said he was never going to play again for the Bulls. So seeing him really tough that game six out, it's kind of, it kind of was a great way to bring his Chicago Bulls story to an end because I think a lot of fans lost some respect for him through this documentary. It was, it was tough on Scotty at times, and I'll admit I kind of tilted my head a couple of times wondering, Scotty, why would you do that? So for it to come full circle like that, where he really toughed it out and just was a man's man in that final game was really cool to see. And uh, it, I think it was a testament to he and Jordan's relationship. It was unbelievable to see the flu game. Obviously, it was incredible. And I think it was Scotty's way then of saying, well, you put it out all out on the line just days ago, you know, so I'm going to do the same for you. You mentioned the flu game. It was kind of funny to hear Michael actually call it the food poisoning game um, I didn't actually realize it was was that I heard flu game I heard possibly hangover over the years right yeah all kinds of different things but uh yeah I, uh, that's actually uh, one of the games that I know is featured on a uh, DVD I've got with some of Michael's best games I think I've got the same one you're talking about I think it's the ultimate Jordan DVD something like that yes sir yeah it is uh, <laughs> Now, when we talk about the 98 Bulls, we obviously have to talk about that final shot for Jordan over Russell, which will, will live forever, obviously. Talk about that and that being kind of the last hurrah for that Bulls dynasty. I mean, how else would you want it to end, right? It was a moment that will forever go down in sports history, not just Chicago Bulls history. And um, as iconic as it was, it was, it was hilarious to hear Jordan talk about it when he addressed the question. It's always come up. Did, did I push off? He said, you know, when he said, of course I didn't push off. His momentum was already carrying him that, that way. And so, of course, it wasn't a push off. So, that, that, was, uh, that was entertaining. That was pretty funny. I laughed. And, um, obviously, that's how Michael was going to respond when he was asked that question. It's probably been asked it a million times by now. But that final shot, I mean, what a way to end it. That's, it's obviously a lot of people have that poster in their rooms as a kid and maybe still have it, you know, in an office or around the house. It's an iconic moment. And uh, it, was, it was cool to rewatch it again for the you know, 100th time uh, myself. But really cool way to, to end his Bulls story, to end the, uh, the dynasty. Yeah. And when we think about the Bulls run six titles in eight years, they weren't just beating scrubs. They were beating Hall of Famers. 
great teams and some greatness involved. There was some, there's obviously always a little luck involved in, in things like this. There's uh, guys like Paxson stepping up and hitting a shot, Steve Kerr. I really like the, the little glance into Steve Kerr in episode nine. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that was great. Um, him with a little uh, at the celebration, him joking about Michael not being ready for a, a big moment like that, and him <laughs> stepping up and doing that. What are your thoughts yeah. on you know Steve Kerr? Obviously, has been a part of the great teams both as a player and as a coach. Now, your thoughts on Steve Kerr? Well, I've, I've always liked Steve Kerr. I think he's he's very smart. He's he you know when he talked about that he wasn't the greatest athlete, but he knew what he was good at and he, he focused on that and that's how he carved out a role in the NBA. So he's very smart. I think that's why he's to this day, still a great coach. Obviously he, he was given a phenomenal team in the Warriors, but I think that's what makes him such a great coach in general. And I'm sure why he was able to offer so much to Greg Popovich is that he's just a really intelligent person. Uh, obviously both of his parents were incredibly intelligent and I, I really did enjoy the story where they, they talked about his dad. And I, I did not know, honestly, that his dad was killed like that and that he had that much in common with, with Michael. So really interesting to, to see that uh, they had that parallel between the two of them. But Kerr, as a, as a player, obviously, he, you could tell he was a guy who was very well respected. He knew when to have fun, but he also knew that he had to put in the work. And you just, you got to love NBA players like that who had incredibly long careers because they did a few things really, really well. And they were just very smart. They're great teammates. And you could tell that he was a guy, Jordan, who he could trust, that that Steve would do whatever it took. And um, obviously there's a story where they, you know, got into it, but I think that was good for both of them. They talked about that. You know, after that, they both kind of earned each other's respect, which was cool. But I think Steve was the ultimate competitor, the ultimate teammate who might not have been the ultimate athlete. And I, I got to love that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I know Steve Kerr, the all-time leader in three-point percentage in the NBA, uh, just ahead of yep. uh, Seth Curry, <laughs> not Steph Curry. <laughs> but, uh, right. So that's, that's interesting. I know Steve would go on to, to win a championship the very next year with the Spurs. So he had a, his own little right. four-peat. A guy who I started watching NBA probably mid-90s somewhere, so I, I remember somewhat as my childhood the second three-peat for the Bulls and uh, Dennis Rodman being on those teams really stood out to me. Uh, I think as a child, I remember most of all the different colored hair, but I also yeah. remember him going yeah. over to the sidelines and riding a stationary bike when he was out of the game. I remember him just being so relentless on the boards and on defense. Talk about Dennis Rodman. Man, what a, what a unique player and person. I guess that's putting it nicely. But really, he was, he was very unique. I thought it was interesting how Phil Jackson was able to not necessarily corral Dennis Rodman, because I don't think anybody could ever do that, but was able to build that relationship with Dennis and kind of coach him in a way that most people wouldn't necessarily think he would be coached um, kind of gave him a little bit of a leash and let him be him but knew that when it came game time that Dennis was going to give you everything he had you know they talked about him exiting the finals and going to Wrestlemania and you know whatever midway through the finals I thought that was funny and thought about you know what would happen if that happened today and he would get absolutely obliterated by the media but the fact that he came, that he came back and just dominated the next game, you can't make that stuff up. Like the whole documentary, he's, you know, when he had the chance that he or his teammates or, you know, anybody talking about Dennis would basically refer to the fact that, hey, off the court, Dennis is going to be Dennis. But when he's on the court, he's there to play and he's, he's going to play with the best in the league. Uh, he's going to give it everything he has and just – such a weird dynamic to watch unfold where he's doing what he's doing off the court, you know, and to an extent the Bulls are allowing it. The whole I need a vacation type deal was, was hilarious. But when he's on the court, he's just dominant. And it's so funny. I, I think about Antonio Brown uh, a little bit in the NFL when you talk about guys who are just a little crazy off the field. Now, Antonio Brown has probably – a lot more deeper issues than Dennis Rodman did. Dennis, Dennis was just a, a unique character, and, and Antonio Brown's a little crazy, but um, that's an understatement. But uh, I think about guys like that today who, you know, it's not going to fly. That type of behavior is not going to fly. 
today. And Dennis Rodman, I don't think he would be an exception to the rule today. I, I don't think his behavior would, would fly, but thank goodness it was back in, uh, in the time that it was because it sure worked out for him. When you look back at times like that, the game's just so much more physical back then. So many more things were allowed. And that makes it even more impressive what the Bulls were able to do. I mean, you see them going up against and, and getting past the Pistons finally and seeing them get past a team like the Knicks. It really just tried to take Michael out. Talk about how impressive that was. Oh, man, yeah. That was, that was definitely eye-opening for a lot of folks who maybe hadn't known that they were going after Michael. You know, the whole Jordan rules thing was obviously very – interesting um and up for debate by a few obviously it was a little uh, it was a little out there in terms of what sam smith wrote and there's a lot of controversy around it now but the fact that you know there was essentially a game plan where you know if michael was in the paint you were you were just going to knock him out i mean it was going to be a street fight if he got to the basket you didn't do your job essentially so it actually kind of made me think i know i keep making these nfl parallels it kind of made me think of the bounty gate Living in Minnesota, I know a lot of Vikings fans who are still to this day upset and will probably never let that go. But it made me think of something like that where, you know, basically they put a bounty on Michael's head and that was the way they played. That was how they were going to win, which is hilarious because that's the only way anybody would have won if they had taken Michael as he entered the paint, basically punched him in the face, broke his jaw and he was forced out of the game. That's the only way you were going to beat Michael. And uh, that's what it came to. And I, I, I honestly thought it was kind of funny. And I knew it fueled Jordan. Obviously, it fueled him uh, just to go out there and beat him anyways. Yeah, I think uh, some of the interesting stats I saw about the Bulls during their run, only played in two game sevens during that whole run, uh, beat seven 60-win teams, only faced elimination games twice during that whole run. Just, just incredible stats to look at where – so many times, you know, this, this dynasty could have ended even earlier, but they kept finding a way just some way, somehow. And just is so incredible to watch that back during this documentary. I know one thing that keeps occurring to me is imagine if we had uh, social media back in those days. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you're right. Because, I mean, Michael Jordan is iconic, always will be. But think that him and other guys on this team – Dennis Rodman, you talk about how, how much even larger they could be. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's funny when you said that one phrase popped into my head, and that's this. Michael Jordan dominates social media in the year 2020. Imagine what it would be like when he was in his playing years. You know, every day you see stuff about Michael Jordan on social media. There's always going to be conversations. There's always going to be debates. There's always going to be this, that, and the other. Uh, and he's been retired for almost 20 years. So you think about that and what it would be like back in, in his playing days. Michael may have broken the internet a few times back then. Yeah, it was nice to see this documentary. We got a few new uh, memes came out of it. I know the one with the tablet. Uh, Jordan uh, looking at the video of Gary Payton is hilarious. And, you know, we've, we've had the crying Jordan memes for a while, but uh, had some new ones pop up now. The soundtrack of this last dance was great i mean we had just to name a few the beastie boys ll cool j wu-tang clan a lot of big names and a lot of music that really took me back what did you think of the soundtrack of the uh last dance you know what uh i may be in the minority here but uh i went you know when you're talking about the soundtrack now yeah it kind of comes back to me and i i really thoroughly did enjoy it but i was so enraptured in what was happening on the screen that anytime there was music i don't know if i truly you know it, it occurred to me oh yeah that's beastie boys or yeah that's hello cool J. I thought it was really well done overall. I'll say that. I, I can't give you a straight answer on the soundtrack because I was so wrapped up in the documentary itself. But just the overall production of it was was phenomenal. I know that there were moments where uh, the music that was playing in the background had me almost on the edge of my seat uh, as if I was watching something happen again for the first time. And that's impressive. That's really hard to do. So ESPN and, and Netflix did an incredible job just overall with the, the production. And I think the, the soundtrack only helped fuel the fire that that documentary was. Yeah, I'm really happy uh, in the end they decided to, to move this documentary up because I know it was supposed to start originally on June 2nd, I believe, but with everything going on, uh, I'm really happy they made the decision to move it up and, and give us something and the ratings reflect that tons and tons of people watched it. 
Yeah, what they say, like six million, almost six million watched the the last two episodes. That's insane. And uh, I want to talk about Phil Jackson. You know, obviously got to coach Michael and Scotty. Got to coach Kobe and Shaq. Eleven championships as a coach. Talk, talk about Phil Jackson. It's tough not to see him as the the greatest coach of all time in the NBA. I might be a little bit biased, of course, and he may have been in really good situations, both teams he went to. But Phil really impressed me in that documentary. I I really enjoyed how he reflected on his relationships with his players. He just seems so wise. The fact that he could handle so many personalities, obviously the big one in Michael and then Dennis, but he was so cool, calm, and collected. And, you know, when he raised his voice, you knew it meant something. But he was just so wise. I think that's the best word I could I can think of to describe him is just he had a lot of wisdom. And you saw with him co- coming up, coaching, and even down in Puerto Rico, talking about how much he learned down there. Mm-hmm. That was a really cool segment for me to watch because I didn't know a lot about that. And then to see him make his way back to the NBA. And it was really interesting to see, uh, basically, you know, there's some people that have asked me about the final year with Doug Collins. You know, they had a winning record. They lose in the playoffs. And Phil Jackson all of a sudden is the new coach. You know, you, you fired Doug Collins. And I, I said the other day, I said, I don't think it was necessarily an indictment on Doug Collins as it was a gold star for Phil Jackson, so to speak. They, they kind of knew that they wanted this guy to be the coach, that he, he knew something that not everybody else did. He had that triangle offense. He had a scheme that was going to work and it was going to work flawlessly and that he was just that good that, yeah, we could fire Doug Collins, who was by all means a good coach. And uh, it wasn't anything personal. It was just that, hey, we have this guy that we want him to be the coach now. And it was, it was an intriguing part to reflect on and to think about for me personally. But Phil overall, just as a coach, I think you could sum him up as being, uh, again, very wise. And uh, he knew his audience, as, as they say. He knew his players very well. He was, I think, in a weird way, a player's coach. Maybe not everybody would describe him as that, but I think there's a case to be made where he was player's coach in in kind of a weird way. I really enjoyed the part about him and Dennis Rodman and how they connected on just an interesting level with um, their Native American background and, and love for that kind of stuff. So that was really cool. But overall, uh, Phil, he's got to be the greatest coach of all time. And that I don't really think that's up for debate. But yeah, that's that's my thoughts on Phil. I, I would agree with you on him being the, the greatest of all time, in my opinion. Like you mentioned, I know he did walk into some really nice situations getting the, the coach Hall of Famers and just all-time greats. But still, even then, you still have to do the work. You still have to know your players. And, and Phil really was able to to get to know each individual and, and work with them in whatever way he needed to get success. You mentioned earlier people will debate until the end of time who the greatest of all time is. I know how you feel. Obviously, I grew up the tail end of Jordan's run and uh, grew up thinking he was the GOAT. As I've gone along, I've sometimes said, you know, it's it's hard to compare eras. But in the end, you know, I think this series kind of reinforced for me just how great Jordan was and that there hasn't been a better player than him. Now, when I think of comparisons, you know, LeBron and Kobe are the two that people always bring up. LeBron, to me, compares to more of a Magic Johnson type player, I believe. And and Kobe is more of a comparison to Michael if you're going to compare someone. I agree 100%. I think, you know, the tragic loss of Kobe earlier this year, uh, obviously uh, there were a lot of highlights played, and you can just see so much Michael in his game. I know he mentioned it in this documentary. They had a little piece on him and saying, you know, I don't get my five championships without Michael getting his six or just all the things he took from Michael. What do you think of the the little little glimpses we got of, of Kobe? That was really cool, you know, uh, because his death happened before the whole COVID-19 thing and kind of went, you know, in terms of the year 2020, the the things that people were really talking about, sports fans or not, was Kobe's death. And then all of a sudden, boom, we're talking about the coronavirus. And it's kind of like, well, we stopped talking about Kobe Bryant. Quite frankly, we stopped talking about everything else, if you want to be honest. Yeah. But uh, I thought it was really cool, the, the little blurbs we got of Kobe, because it kind of brought back those positive emotions. Obviously, negative emotions, you think, oh, man, that's right. Yeah, Kobe's really gone. But to see that little blurb about, you know, I don't get my five rings without Michael, that was very cool. And um, I agree with you about comparisons because Kobe, in my mind, is the closest thing we have had to Michael Jordan since Michael Jordan. And what separates him is that mentality. 
and is the killer instinct, which Kobe had. And I, I still to this day don't think LeBron does, but that's a debate that could last quite a while. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. I think when I think of guys who had that competitiveness, had that maybe that mean streak at times uh, with teammates, but always were able to, to get the best out of them. Jordan and Kobe are the two that jumped to mind right away that, that had that killer instinct, and that's why they were so successful at what they did. That's not to say LeBron doesn't have great skills. Obviously, he does. But uh, I think when you're talking about killer instinct, it's it's MJ and it's Kobe. Right. Yep. Now, uh, a segment I want to get into, my wife came up with the name Ranky Panky. Um, so we basically rank five things each week. Uh, I'd mentioned uh, I wanted to kind of rank our top five non-title winning NBA teams. I take these really seriously always. I do a lot of research on stuff. But uh, when I started thinking about some of the greatest that I remember during my lifetime, some of the honorable mentions, first of all, it barely missed. I had the 99-2000 Portland Trailblazers. Scotty Pippen was on that team. Greg Anthony, Jermaine O'Neal, Rasheed Wallace, Bonzi Wells, a lot lot of names. Uh, A very physical team uh, that ended up losing to the Lakers seven games in the Western Conference Finals. So 99-2000 Trailblazers were one of my honorable mentions. The other two honorable mentions I had, uh, my favorite player is J.J. Redick and has been since he was at Duke. So I'm going to follow his career and, and always support him wherever he ends up going. 2013-14 Clippers uh, were one that I liked. I think that whole three or four-year stretch where they had DeAndre Jordan, CP3, Blake Griffin, and J.J., Jamal Crawford was on those teams, really kept waiting for that team to kind of take the next step and just never get past the second round. And the 13-14 team ended up losing to uh, OKC in the Western Conference semis. And then the 18-19 76ers lost in seven games. Uh, Kawhi's shot that bounced around I don't know how many times on the rim before going in. i never forget that game. Uh, really enjoyed watching that team. All year long, I didn't really think they had what it took to get to the finals. But then uh, once they got hot, I think they won maybe 16 games in a row or something like that at some point during the season. And, and they went in the playoffs hot and ended up going out on that. And obviously Kawhi had his run with the Raptors. Uh, that was phenomenal. But, uh, you know, that was my last honorable mention. In getting into my top five, first one I had, number five is where I'll start. I had uh, the 2010-11 Chicago Bulls, actually. Uh, There we go. Derrick Rose, MVP. Carlos Boozer was on that team. Luol Deng, a Duke guy for a year. Kyle Korver, Joaquin Noah. Really liked that team a lot. You know, I grew up late 90s being a Bulls fan. Obviously, I like the Charlotte Hornets when they came along, but um, the Chicago Bulls were a team I loved, and I I started to really enjoy watching them play again around the time Derrick Rose came in. So that was my number five, the 2010-11 Chicago Bulls. They lost to the the Miami Heat Eastern Conference Finals, which Heat had their big three at that time. But Rose was the most fun player to watch in the league at that time. Who did you have uh, at number five? Well, at number five, now you went you went crazy in depth, Josh. I got to give it to you, man. <laughs> you know, years and entire rosters and everything. I just kind of went by the seat of my pants in terms of favorite players, I think, uh, overall. But uh, number five, well, no, I take that back because I have, I have a, a few teams, you know, with, with multiple players that I just loved watching. But number five for me is the Allen Iverson-led Sixers who lost to uh, the Lakers growing up uh, in that era you know, like you late nineties and then uh, early two thousands was really when I watched a lot of NBA and Allen Iverson was just always one of my favorite players. I just loved how he went out there basically to prove that he was the best player on the court every single game. And the fact that he willed that roster to the finals is it's unbelievable. There's no way that that roster without Iverson is a bottom five team in the NBA and he willed that roster to the finals. So that is my number five team, even though it boils down to Iverson. I still wish he would have somehow gotten a ring. I think uh, because of that reason, sometimes Iverson may be underrated by a lot of people, but man, that guy's toughness was, was something else being undersized, but such a great player, so talented. And, and you're right. That was a team that also I considered putting on my list, ended up leaving them off, but I, I definitely hold that team in high regard and hold, Allen Iverson in high regard for sure. 
when you talk about winning a team to the finals, uh, my number four, the 06-07 Cleveland Cavaliers. I think even though LeBron's gone on to win some championships, I think that was one of the most uh, impressive feats was him leading that Cavs team to the finals. You know, he had Larry Hughes alongside him as number two. But really, I mean, that that another team that probably didn't have any business making it to the finals but did. And I still think that's one of his best accomplishments, even though they ended up getting swept by the Spurs in the finals. Uh, just seeing them come out of the East that year and, and make it there. So those six, those seven Cavs were number four for me. Well, what do you got? Was that – was that the year that he, uh, against the Pistons, between fourth quarter and overtime, scored 23 yeah. straight? Yeah, 23, yeah. 25, something like that, yeah. That was one of the craziest games I've ever seen. And funny, if you know me at all, you know I love to harp on LeBron a little bit. Uh, that, honestly, is one of the only times in, in my life that I have seen a player come close to Michael Jordan's killer instincts. And really one of the only times, I think, that I've ever seen it from LeBron where he could just completely take over a game and, and will his team to victory. So, yeah, uh, but that, that was downright impressive. Yeah. I can remember going into school the day after that game. That's what everybody was talking about. Even people that don't even think watched basketball very much. were talking about 25 straight or whatever. And I think 48 points that he had in that. Yeah. Who have you got number four? Number four for me was, uh, the New Jersey Nets with Jason Kidd, Kenyon Martin, uh, Vince Carter. You had Kerry Kittles, Keith Van Horn. I just loved watching that team. It was a, a lot of fun because Jay Kidd was in his prime. They they ran the fast break like nobody's business. He and Kmart. It was just so much fun to watch. So that's who I've got at number four. I was a big Kenyon Martin fan. And uh, Jason Kidd just was was unreal to watch at times. Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned them because uh, my number three is actually the New Jersey Nets, um, 0203. <laughs> you could throw in 0102. I think they went to back-to-back finals uh, there in the early 2000s. Hate they didn't get it done at least one of those years, but said Jason Kidd, so much fun to watch. All the triple doubles he had. Uh, I know you mentioned Kerry Kittles. I remember so many of those names. Those guys were so much fun to watch play and uh, – North ended up losing to the Lakers one year and the Spurs the next in the finals, but they got past some some really good teams there with the Celtics and the Pistons at that time. So number three for me was, was early two thousands New Jersey Nets. Cool. Well, number three for me is one of my just favorite teams to watch. Again, I, I was really always a fan of these, you know, kind of so so called big threes before they were a real, you know, were a thing. But the Steve Nash, Sean Marion, and Amari Stoudemire-led Suns oh, yeah. were – talk about fun to watch. My goodness, uh, another all-time point guard in Nash. But then you've got Marion and Amari Stoudemire. Those, those fast breaks were <laughs> – those fast breaks were quite the sight to see too. So that team, uh, you know, for a few years was very good and um, just never won it, obviously. Uh, but they're up there for me at number three. Yeah, that was, that was definitely a fun team to watch. Moving on, number two for me, uh, I went with the 2001-02 Sacramento Kings. Uh, they ended up losing to the Lakers seven games in the Western Conference Finals that year. This was uh, Chris Weber, Vladi Divac, um, Doug Christie, Mike Bibby, Paige Stoyakovich, one of the greatest shooters of all time. Yeah. Uh, a young Gerald Wallace, who I forgot was on that team. <laughs> and uh, ended up becoming the uh, the greatest Charlotte Bobcat of all time, I think. <laughs> but uh, that was a fun team to watch. I remember game four kind of broke my heart a little because Robert Ory hitting a big shot for the Lakers uh, in that game. But that was a an epic series of those two going head-to-head. Who have you got number two? Yeah, just to comment quickly on that, uh, that was, that was kind of my favorite era in basketball for me as a kid that I can remember vividly. Anytime the Western Conference playoffs were on in that era, it was must-watch television. The Western Conference playoffs were so much fun to watch at that time. So the Kings, I actually debated putting them in there in my top five because they were, again, just a blast to watch against those Spurs and Lakers teams. But number two for me, uh, number one and number two are are going to be a little bit more personal for me. So number two, uh, growing up most of my life in Minnesota, I was at game five where the Timberwolves beat a rookie, Carmelo Anthony, and the Denver Nuggets in the first round of the playoffs. I was there when they closed them out. It was one of the most thrilling sports moments of my life just because uh, it's something that Minnesota had never seen before, and the Target Center was going ballistic. 
And I was there with, uh, still to this day, my best friend. And it was a blast. So that team with Garnett, Sprewell, Sam Cassell, you had uh, Troy Hudson, Wally Zerbiak, Rasho Nesterovich. I could go on, Trenton Hassel. That entire team, it was just a fun team to watch. And obviously, Prime KG at the center of it all was always fun to watch in person here in Minnesota. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, I know we were talking earlier in the show about Killer Instinct. I think KG, a guy who had a Killer Instinct for sure. Absolutely. Uh, I know he's going in the Hall of Fame as well with this class this year that's uh, arguably the best class ever. Oh, 100%. And uh, my number one, also a uh, personal kind of memories for me, the 0809 Orlando Magic. As I said, you know, J.J. Reddick being my favorite player, that was the, the one time he got to go to the finals. Yeah. Losing to the Lakers. Uh, but that Magic team was fun to watch. They knocked off uh, the Boston Celtics, I think, in the second round in a seven-game series. I can remember uh, J.J. put on Ray Allen for a lot of that series and actually played really great defense, about as good a defense as I've seen him play against a Hall of Famer like Ray Allen. Uh, they got past LeBron and the Cavs the next round and then ran into that Lakers team with Kobe and Paul Gasol and Lamar Odom and all those guys. But, uh, you know, that was a Magic team that also had Dwight Howard, who was playing – the height of his career at that time. Or Mikhail Pietras was on that team. Hito Turkoglu, Gortat, and a lot of international players. So uh, that was that was a fun team to watch for me. That was that was a fun team, man. That, that was back when I actually liked Dwight Howard. So yeah, me too. Uh, me too. <laughs> good good times. Um, well, number one for me, you always you already mentioned um, Derek Rose, near and dear to my heart. Uh, every once in a while, I still go back and watch him play. You know, a lot of highlights and and film on him, and then I start to cry and I turn my my computer off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that that Bulls team, man, yeah, it has to be number one for me. I loved watching Rose. He was it was him and Russell Westbrook at that time, the two most exciting players in the NBA to watch. And just what he was able to do on the basketball court was nothing short of spectacular. And then you had, you know, a guy in Noah who ultimately would win a defensive player of the year, Luol Deng, who is just one of the most underrated players, I think, in NBA history played for a lot of bad teams, but he was so good at so many little things. And, you know, the rest of those guys, I don't like to spend a lot of time on Carlos Boozer because I really never liked him. Honestly, he had some good games offensively, but I think if you asked him to uh, write the word defense in cursive, he couldn't do it. So <laughs> I don't spend a lot of time on Boozer because I just, man, ah, he was kind of like the consolation prize in free agency uh, when the yeah. Bulls signed him. So, But uh, that team overall, man, was such a blast to watch. Yeah, I think when I think back to uh, the players throughout my lifetime who have had Injuries that have really derailed their career. Derrick Rose, one of the first ones that comes to mind. Tracy McGrady is one of my favorite players ever to watch. Penny Hardaway, I know, had injuries. Grant Hill being a Duke guy. Uh, I've heard some people say he could have possibly been one of the top three or five players of all time, maybe, if he wouldn't have had his injury issues. But uh, you right. hate to see it, but I was happy. I know Rose had a big game this past season and kind of turning back the clock a little bit. But uh, I've always enjoyed watching him play. Yeah, man. Uh, I'll never forget where I was uh, when he got hurt. And um, just just one of those moments that's ingrained in your head forever. Just what if, what if. Very sad to think about. Well, Ryan, uh, I want to thank you so much for joining me again, man. I've had a lot of fun talking about you know these top five non-title winning teams, about all the things we talked about earlier, especially the last dance. So much we could unpack with that. But uh, I've really enjoyed talking that to you, especially being the fan of the Bulls and the Chicago teams that you are. Yeah, absolutely, man. I appreciate it. You know, like I was telling you earlier, it's just fun to be able to talk sports, you know, even at my day job, which I'm fortunate to still have. That's uh, that's kind of what gets us through. I'm fortunate to work with a few guys that, that also love sports. And so that's what we do. You know, when there's time on our hands, we talk sports and um, can't wait to have them back. And glad we could talk tonight, man. It was fun to just escape a little bit from still the craziness going on absolutely man well you take care and you and your family i hope are, are doing well and just uh hopefully we'll get some more live sports here as soon as possible yes amen well thank you josh you as well man hope you and your wife are doing well and staying healthy and and are doing well yeah, we are thanks man appreciate it 
Well, that's it for another episode of Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. I'd like to thank TheWindyCity.com's Ryan Heckman for joining me this week. Really enjoyed our conversation. We talked about the Chicago Bears and also discussed the Last Dance documentary that centered on the Chicago Bulls. And then in Ranky Panky, we ranked our top five non-title winning NBA teams. Just to recount, I had the 2010-11 Chicago Bulls at number five, the 06-07 Cleveland Cavaliers at four, the 0203 New Jersey Nets at three, the 0102 Sacramento Kings at two, and number one was the 0809 Orlando Magic. Ryan's list, he had the 2001 Philadelphia 76ers at five. Then going four through one, he had those early 2000s New Jersey Nets. The Phoenix Suns teams led by Steve Nash, Sean Marion, Amari Stoudemire. They won three straight division titles, 04 to 07. He had the 03-04 Minnesota Timberwolves. And then at number one, he had the Chicago Bulls led by Derrick Rose, which I mentioned on my list. Next week, a very special show planned. Uh, my 30th birthday will happen just a few days before the next show comes out, so I've got an extra special Ranky Panky planned. Since I'll be turning 30, I'll be ranking my top player on each of the 30 current NBA teams. But you'll have to listen for that. We'll also have the debut of McKinney's Mailbag, where I'll answer some questions that some friends gave me on Facebook. So looking forward to that as well, that and much more next week on Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. As always, you can like Four Quarters with Josh McKinney on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter at SuperJMac32.